Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series is from our Hot Topics series and is directed towards allergists, our patients, as well as the general public. Today's topic is Impact of COVID-19 on Allergists and Their Patients, which is both timely and extremely important. We are pleased to welcome Dr. Paul Williams as today's guest. Dr. Williams has been in private practice at Northwest Asthma and Allergy Center in Washington State since 1991. Dr. Williams currently serves on the Board of Directors for the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology and is Chair of the Quad AI's COVID-19 Task Force. Over the past 30 years, Dr. Williams has made countless contributions of his expertise in practice management as well as medical education through his dedicated service and high-level involvement in multiple professional organizations. His accolades are numerous, and his role as a leader is unquestioned. Now more than ever, his voice can help guide our specialty and our patients. With that, Dr. Williams, thank you so much for taking time to join us today, and welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Dave. Well, I am, I'm thrilled to have you as a guest for so many reasons, but I'd like to start with the, the rather unfortunate question that I've been asking all of our recent guests to the podcast while we record these episodes during the current COVID-19 pandemic. How are you holding up? I'm doing okay, and, and thank you for the impressive introduction. Um, you know, our governor issued stay-at-home orders back in mid-March, and I'm in a high-risk age, and so fortunately with changes that we've made to our practice in telemedicine, I've been able to stay at home and, and be safe and uh, restrict my exposures. Uh, my wife and I have never spent as much time together in the same space since we've been married, so fortunately we've been getting along very well. Well, that's good to hear. <laughs> um, well, I'm glad you're safe. And then do you have a, have you always had like a home office set up or have you had to, you know, get something special set up over the last few weeks to, to handle everything? Um, actually, everything was pretty well set up as it turned out. I happened to have a camera for my PC and, and so it works great. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. Well, you know, going back to, um, you know, where you live, uh, you, you have a very unique perspective to offer um, as you live and care for patients in the state of Washington, which was one of the earliest epicenters of COVID-19 infection in the United States. I would love to hear from you um, if you could tell us what was that experience like in the early stages? Sure. You know, it's really interesting. Um, things were going along as usual. We we were obviously aware of what was going on in China at the time. And we did have one case in late January that showed up at a local hospital not far from me um, who had just recently traveled from China. And so it was no surprise that someone would have the virus. And uh, that was that. He was hospitalized and kept in the hospital for two weeks and discharged and did well. Um, and then the 
University of Washington Virology Lab, um, out of interest for this virus, were developing a uh, RT-PCR test, a uh, transcriptional diagnostic test of their own um, because of some of the frustration that was going on with the CDC at the time. And at the same time, there'd been a study going on in Seattle called the Seattle Flu Studies that started in 2018. And what's ironic is that this flu study was started as a way to track the spread of pandemic viruses. And they happened to pick flu because that was reliably present every year and they could test it. And so what they were doing is they were setting up kiosks around town and the people would go by, walk by, and, and they'd say, hey, if you had a cold, do you have any cold symptoms right now? Would you mind getting tested? And they're actually collecting samples on the street. And then the next year, they developed a home testing kit to collect samples. So they had about 2,000 nasal swab samples on file. And the university had this diagnostic test for COVID-19. And so they said, hey, let's test some of these and see if anybody, any of these people have had the virus or have the virus. And they did turn up a couple of people that actually were positive for, for SARS-CoV-2. Uh, and so they didn't have any history of travel to China, didn't have any history of contact with a person uh, with travel to China. So the community spread was, um, was confirmed. But we still didn't really have much going on at the time. So then things started getting really scary when the virus spread like wildfire through a nursing home in a suburb of Seattle and um, ended up overwhelming the resources of their local hospital. Uh, they didn't have enough ICU beds. They had to set up a region-wide sort of triage system for hospitalization to uh, refer patients to different hospitals for bed availability. Um, people were running out of PPE, were running out of um, ventilators and, and ICU beds. So it got pretty scary and we had to really think as a practice, what are we gonna do now? I mean, we don't wanna see these patients in our office. Um, we're happy to deal with them uh, and answer their questions but needed to refer them to emergency rooms or urgent cares or their primary care, and often had to have them call ahead of time to make sure that those offices wanted to see them as well. So there was a lot of fear about transmission of this virus and protecting healthy patients at the time. Mm. And to help orient us timeline-wise, the first case was in late January, is that correct in your state? That's right. Around January twentieth. Okay. And for perspective, I don't believe that the um, administration formed the COVID nineteen task force until oh boy, about four or five weeks later. So it was really late February before we had this national recognition and, and response. Um, right. In in that intervening period, and of course nobody knew which direction this was going to go. It's very scary to see those cases in the United States and then think about community wide transmission, but. What was that like for you? Um, were you receiving any information? Were you having to make decisions on the fly? I mean, was it just every single day was, uh, you know, a scary assessment of what was going on? Or can you give us some insight into that? Well, we were um, 
we were getting information, certainly from the CDC and from our, our university. Testing was available in other areas, but primarily just for their patients. So a primary care clinic would arrange testing, but it was only for their patients. And, and so it was difficult for us to, to figure out where we we're going to send our sick patients to be tested, if at all. We, we knew we had to do something to change the way we were practicing so that we could protect our staff and our vulnerable patients. And that's basically when we started to decide to go to telemedicine. So do you think this was early on, like in February, around that time when you made that decision? It was actually in early March. Okay. Things, yeah, things really got crazy probably the last few days of February and the first week in March. That's mm. when most of the nursing home cases were occurring. And there were actually, I think, around about 10 different nursing homes in the Seattle area that were experiencing the same thing. But, but most of the cases were in this one particular nursing home. Okay. And, you know, for our listeners, we're recording this in early May. Uh, so really, this is only just a short, you know, several weeks ago, really. Uh, but it seems like a lifetime ago, I'm sure, to you especially. Oh, yes. Right. Yeah. Now, um, Dr. Williams, we've all learned some difficult lessons, and we're still learning them as we experience this pandemic and, and try to adapt the best that we can. Do you have any, you know, takeaways from the early experiences that you went through? Anything that you would do differently if you had to go through it again? Well, I, th I think the biggest thing was the frustration about lack of testing. But what mm -hmm. that made us do is sort of sit back and think about these patients and the fact that we really didn't have any treatment for them if they had COVID-19. So our, our biggest challenge was to figure out what was going on with our asthma patients primarily. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because the symptoms of an asthma exacerbation mimic many of the symptoms of uh, COVID-19, and we're also in the middle of a pretty nasty flu season at the same time. So we had all these patients who were calling with fever and cough, and it was difficult to differentiate um, what was going on for sure with these patients. Um, we, we had to change the way we triage patients uh, normally our nurses would take most of the triage calls, and uh, if it was a known asthma patient, they all had treatment protocols that they went through. But now, nobody really knew with all the nuances of COVID-19 whether it was truly an asthma exacerbation or something else. So as doctors, we needed to, to make those triage calls. And because we were already set up for telemedicine, we were able to actually see those patients virtually uh, on the same day that they called in. So we were doing the sick visits basically same day versus via telemedicine. So that really helped. Wow, that's, that's a very rapid adaptation to the what it seemed like a very rapidly evolving situation. Now, you know, along those lines, we know that the impact of COVID-19 has varied greatly based upon geographic location, uh, the characteristics of the underlying population and where people live and things like that. What have you heard from our colleagues and other allergists? Are all practices equally affected or, you know, have some really just been kind of going about their business as if almost nothing happened? Well, Dave, as you, 
as a member of the task force yourself, you know that we really haven't heard very much. Mm-hmm. Um, most of what we've heard about other practices are from members of the task force or their close colleagues. Um, we happen to have several offices around the state, some of which are in more rural areas, more than 100 miles from Seattle. And initially, they didn't have very many cases, if any. And so for them, it was business as usual for some of our clinics and total video for the others. So very much different across the country and even regionally. Yeah. Now, going back to your practice, you, you seem like an, an early adapter to change, and it sounds like you've really been able to implement those changes. Um, tell us about telemedicine. Is that something that um, you were doing at all before the pandemic, or did you just start that you know, really in the last couple of months? We actually have had telemedicine capability for a year or more, but on a very limited basis. And there's really only a couple of our practitioners who are doing it much at all. Uh, Some of our patients come from remote areas and it takes them a long time to get to one of our offices. And so for simple follow-ups, we were doing uh, telemedicine visits, primarily for lab result discussions and, and things like that. And so we had a platform available um, and uh, all of us were sort of registered as providers for that platform. So it was relatively easy for us to make that shift. And we decided in early March that as of March 13th, all of our visits were going to be telemedicine and we we're going to have no in-person visits for appointments. And that was difficult for our scheduling staff because they had to convert these to telemedicine visits. We had to make sure that mechanisms were in place for getting the proper insurance information and and releases signed before the appointment, which was challenging to say the least. But fortuitously, one of our new physicians had family in Italy and was visiting her family at the time in uh, early March. And obviously a bad time to be in Italy, but she managed to get out of Italy before things got too crazy. But she had to put herself on 14-day quarantine when she came back. Mm. So she's the one that really got into the telemedicine and was doing all of the sick visits and everything for us and got everybody else started uh, through the difficulties of other people who hadn't done much telemedicine figuring out how to do it. Uh, We worked it into our electronic health record to make the visits easier to record. So it all came together pretty well. I mean, it was shaky for a couple weeks, but but things uh, did well. We continued to um, do shots and biologics in our office, however, and carefully screen the patients. We'd call them the night before and make sure that that they were well. And uh, for those that were just drop-in shot visits, we screened them at the door and managed to rearrange our waiting area so that we could uh, be consistent about physical distancing. So the fact that we didn't have a lot of patients in the office made this a lot easier to get done. Mm, Sure. Now, 
we still have a ways to go, of course. We're going to talk some more about that in a moment. But do you anticipate that, uh, you know, telemedicine is here to stay in some way, shape, or form? Or do you think we'll just go back to completely seeing patients in the office? Well, I hope it's here to stay. I mean, that really depends on what the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services do about the Medicare waivers and what commercial insurances do about payment for these services. Telemedicine has been available for quite some time, but the biggest barrier was the fact that reimbursements were so low that there really wasn't any incentive to do it. Um, as allergists around the country, we tend to have patients who live some distance away, oftentimes from our offices, and um, reluctantly some would come in for pretty simple follow-ups and, and spend a good part of the day doing that. I think that telemedicine would be would offer us the opportunity to to better serve patients in remote areas and to probably keep better contact with our patients if we can get the payers to go along with that. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I've had a wonderful experience so far. We had no telemedicine capabilities in our division uh, prior to early March, and we got up and running in about seven days. And we also have, we've done the same model as you, no patients in the office except for immunotherapy and biologics. Um, and I think it's working out great. So I, I'm hopeful that We'll continue to utilize it in some manner, uh, especially for those that live quite some distance from where we're located. So we shall see. Um, but, you know, transitioning a little bit, um, because I'd like to talk about your role as chair of the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, Immunology COVID-19 Task Force, which didn't exist until a couple months ago. Can you give us some background as to why this task force was formed, who was invited to join, and, and what purpose it serves? Sure, Dave. Um... You know, it's interesting. Like you say, it seems like an eternity since this all started, but it wasn't very long ago. But I, I really had to search my memory to figure out now, how did this get started? <laughs> but I can't remember who brought it up at first, but it, but it all resulted from a conversation I had with Mary Beth Sosano, who's the current president of the Academy. When all of us were getting... Uh, overwhelmed with information from multiple sources about this virus. We're getting messages from the CDC, from everybody's specialty society, and so on, not to mention the lay press about the virus, and some of which was applicable to us and some of which wasn't. So I mentioned to Mary Beth and others that, you know, it would be really nice if we could set up some systems so that we could focus all of this information on uh, items that were important for us as allergists and, and to provide that on the Academy website so that people would have a reliable resource to um, consult. And um, so that's what happened is Mary Beth and I and, and um, the executive committee of the board decided that we would go ahead and form this task force. And we decided it was important to have a broad representation of the different uh, experiences within the academy. And so um, we, we decided to include another one of my partners because at the time, Seattle was still the epicenter. New York hadn't taken over yet. Mm -hmm. um, we included um, 
representatives of the Office of Practice Management, um, Advocacy Committee, because a lot of it related to advocacy. We included you as social media editor, uh, Dr. Mitchell Grayson as scientific and training program representative, so we could cover those fields, and uh, Tom Fleischer, the executive vice president for his lab expertise, uh, Priya Bonsall, who's chair of the Practice Management Committee, and Jim Sussman, who's chair of the regional, state, and local allergy societies. So we had broad representation. And, and we, um, the Academy decided that the charge for the task force was to monitor the impact of the pandemic on the practicing allergist, which we've had some trouble doing, of course, um, serve as a rapid response team to address and communicate issues, which I think we've done fairly successfully, to develop and disseminate information and resources critical to the practice. And I think that's what our messages are doing. And then to work with heart health to assure that um, the voice of our community is heard at state and federal levels through our advocacy committee. That's great. I think that's you know hopefully helpful for our listeners to um, get a, a little bit of a peek behind the curtain about how this came about. And I can attest, I'm honored to be on the task force. And for anybody listening, I can attest that uh, the communication among the members of the task force is uh, constant. Um, it's I don't think a day goes by where there isn't some update or or uh, you know somebody brings up some important you know point to to talk about with our with our colleagues. And along those lines, you know, so far, what what types of resources and messages has the task force disseminated thus far? Well, I think we've sent out about 18 messages so far. We're putting them out initially about two to three times a week. Now I'm trying to get it down to twice a week, but um, the message varies depending on what's going on at the time. Um, I think we started out with telehealth and telehealth rules on billing and, and how to do it, um, financial programs available for practices, rules relating to training and education. So a lot of it was, was guided by the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services and Health and Human Services uh, information that was coming out on a daily basis. Um, we've tried to intersperse clinical points like treatment, um, because people started to talk about what treatments we have for this. So we had to sort of provide evidence on the lack of treatment. Um, there was lots of information about testing. And now there's information about ser serological testing and the value of that. And so it's, it's really evolved over time. And it, it kind of repeats itself to some extent, particularly with the Center for Medicaid Medicare Services changing their rules and waivers uh, on a frequent basis. So, for example, our, our next message is going to be revisiting some of the things that we talked about earlier that have changed in the last couple mm -hmm. of weeks. So mm -hmm. it just keeps going on. Yeah, and, you know, Mary Beth Fasano's recent message to members echoed what the World Health Organization termed an infodemic um, in February because there's just so much information out there and misinformation and constant updates, and a lot of it is evolving, and what was uh, what we thought was correct three weeks ago may now be, you know, refuted by new evidence. So um, I, I think it's great that the task force has been focused on these key messages. So, and along those lines, how do you decide what information to include in each update? 
Well, it's a combination of factors. I mean, originally I thought, okay, I'm a practicing allergist. What am I most concerned about? And, and that's what guided some of the initial messaging. And as you mentioned, uh, having all these different people on the task force and the frequent messaging that we do, uh, everybody is able to come up with an idea about, hey, here's something I heard or here's something going on in my area that we really need to talk about. Um, and so and between that and, of course, heart health, that gives us updates on a regular basis, there's no end to the information that, that we can include in our messaging. Um, we get one message out and done, and I've already started on the next one and start to put together a draft, as you know, and, and uh, you know, it just keeps going on. And, and I hope we're being a help to people because I think it's great information. But. Yeah, you know, along those lines, where can the Academy members find these wonderful resources, and is there a way for them to submit questions as well? Yeah, um, so very prominent on the Academy website is the COVID resources page. And so if you just go to the website and click on that page, there's a wealth of information in that area. Um, our messages are included. Um, you can just click on task force messaging. So every one of the messages that we put out is there. Um, there were some stories about practices and practice adaptation that we've kind of archived, but uh, also Heart Health has a constantly updated advocacy page where anybody who has any questions about some of the financial aid packages that have been passed can go there and get the latest information with a couple of clicks. Mm. Uh, and then if they have questions, what's uh, what's the best way to submit those? Well, there's a couple different ways. Um, we're asking people to submit questions to practicematters at quadai.org or aaai.org, um, but also have asked the regional, state, and local allergy society president to try and gather information and questions from their members and run those up through the RSL chain through the governors. And uh, since the chair of the RSL is also one of our members of our task force. Mm, great. Early on, hey, early on, we had a lot of questions, and they've kind of tapered off. I agree. And it's been interesting from my perspective to see a lot of the same questions repeated, um, which, you know, you can come to expect, I suppose, because if there's important topics, people are going to have the same questions. So I think that's another another way that we gain some insight into the needs of our colleagues about the information that they're craving. Exactly. And that's been one of the ways we've decided to develop messages. You know, we're getting a lot of questions about this. Maybe we need to put it out to everyone. Oh. Now, I know how much hard work you're putting in behind the scenes. Um, and I hope everybody, you know, I, I know the task force definitely appreciates it. And I hope our members do as well. But, you know, uh, as your role as the chair of the task force, what's been the biggest challenge thus far? Well, the biggest challenge is really to determine what the topic of the next message will be and also how can we craft that in a uh, reasonable length that people are going to, to read mm -hmm. and so we don't overwhelm them with information and they just stop looking at it. Um, other than that, there are so many other people that are helping this whole process that uh, 
it's pretty easy for me to to decide what to talk about. The hardest part is just condensing it down into uh, the right level of information. Sure. Do you have any thoughts on how long uh, that we'll need the task force or how long you think it might continue to operate? Well, as Tony Fauci has said, the virus will determine that. <laughs> um, you know, I, I would anticipate that we will continue probably through the summer and maybe into the fall. Um, there are going to be a lot of different aspects to this that are going to develop over time. For example, over the summer, there's the whole idea about that the virus is going to continue to decline. Will there be any new peaks with resumption of normal sort of business practices in the country? Um, will the Center for Medicaid and Medicare change any of their policies? How will practices have to pay back these loans? Will there be an increase in time to allow for loan forgiveness and and um, rehiring of employees. And then if the fall comes and we have another peak, then we'll have to talk about new preparations. So a lot of stuff can happen, but probably the frequency of messaging will slow a little bit. Sure. Now, along those lines of sort of starting to get back to normal in some regard, um, one of the recent topics that's going to coincide with when we publish this podcast um, that's going to come out from the task force focuses on resuming operations for practices. Can you give us a glimpse at what type of information is included in that communication uh, and what those suggestions might include? Well, sure, I'd be happy to. Well, we, we start from the beginning. You know, first of all, if if you're going to make a decision to resume your normal practice, what kind of information do you have to have available? What sort of things do you have to monitor? So we talk a little bit about community spread. We talk about a reasonable and sustainable supply of PPE to protect our staff. We talk about the uh, preparation of um, the office, the physical layout of the office to allow the physical distancing that we think is so important in reducing the spread of this virus. We're going to talk a little bit about what procedures we think are low risk to perform in the office, medium risk or high risk, and alternatives perhaps to doing some of those high risk procedures in the office. And lots of stuff on, on um, how to clean the office, employee infection prevention, and we're leaning heavily on a lot of links to the CDC website because they talk about a lot of these same things. And again, for the listeners, they'll be able to access this members um, on the Academy website. So they'll be able to see all of these, you know, spelled out and, and the specifics that are included in there. But, you know, in your opinion, what's the best way for allergists to incorporate these suggestions? Do you think that every practice needs to adopt every single aspect or is it best for each practice to take a more thoughtful, you know, consideration of how, this information may apply to their own situation. I think each practice has to look at the suggestion and apply it to their unique circumstance. I mean, we tried to be pretty general in a lot of our recommendations. So, and it's so dependent on their staff, their physical layout, their office setup. So I think they need to, to think about these suggestions and try to apply it to their practice and also their community. They need to be aware of what's going on in their community. Are the number of new cases on the rise? Are they leveling off? 
you know, when is it safe to do this? What what telemedicine capability do they have? Are they able to continue to do some of that? Probably most importantly is do they have PPE supply? I mean, that to a large extent determined our office setup um, because we weren't able to get gowns or gloves or goggles or, or masks in the beginning, and we're still having difficulty with a lot of those things. So everybody's mm-hmm. a little different. Sure. And, you know, the safety aspect has come up time and again, and that's, for me personally, one of the most heartwarming aspects of all of this. When I talk to my colleague, our colleagues, I should say, it really is paramount. And the first thing that we care about as allergists is we want to make sure our patients and their families are safe and that our staff are safe as well. And that really rules everything else that we decide. And along those lines, what are some things that practices should consider to keep everyone as safe as possible in the waiting room as well as during and after visits as they consider resuming some operations? Well, this is probably where most of the difficulty comes, and that's trying to allow that physical distancing and infection prevention procedures in the waiting area where the the greatest risk is for getting people together. So they're going to have to think about redesigning their waiting room so that chairs are about six feet apart. Um, they have to clean the office at least daily with a special focus on frequently touched surfaces. I think it'd be a good idea to have tissues, hand sanitizer if available, and disinfectant wipes in the waiting room. You know, I, I was thinking about this the other day and that as a society, we've all kind of gotten used to self-bussing our tables in the fast food restaurants. So maybe with time, people would get used to cleaning off their waiting room chair with a disinfectant wipe after they leave it, because otherwise you may not have the staff to run and run around and do this. So, you know, these are all things that people have to think about. Yeah. Exam room cleaning, of course, is important after every patient. Signs up to remind them about hand hygiene. And there's a lot of good resources on the CDC website on cleaning. Yeah, I um, I appreciate you spelling some of those things out. I was also thinking it, it's the, the optics of it as well, because we want to give reassurance. So we're going to communicate to all of our patients. We're going to do all of these things to make sure that we disinfect and clean. Um, but also, I think it's helpful for them to see it. And so when you see the hand sanitizer there, when you see the stations or reminders, um, it's just that constant reminder that we really are all in this together. And that's a good point. And I think another aspect that I didn't cover are the masks for patients. Um, mm. You know, all of us are seeing this in our communities where uh, the CDC and, and state and local health departments are all encouraging everyone to wear face coverings. And the, the message isn't really getting out there that it's really to protect others, not to protect yourself. And also, someone brought up the point about crowd psychology. And if only sick people are wearing masks, then they become, wearing a mask becomes a social stigma. And people don't want to be stigmatized. But if everybody wears a mask, then there isn't that social stigma. So if they can see that in our waiting rooms and offices that everybody's wearing a mask, that may help them think about doing it in other places as well. Mm, that's a great point. Oh, the psychology behind all of this is just so fascinating and uh, perhaps a, a topic for another time. But 
Now, you, you mentioned this um, briefly, but I want to revisit it because I think it's really important. And that's the fact that as allergists, we offer unique testing and services to our patients. You know, but as the threat of COVID-19 infection is going to persist for a long time, especially among asymptomatic patients, we don't know who's necessarily infected at the time they come in our office and who could spread the disease. What types of tests offer the lowest risk for disease transmission and which ones are more risky? Well, you're right, David. We, we don't know who's going to spread the disease, and all of our recommendations are based on the fact that everyone might be a viral shedder. And so low-risk procedures would include things like skin testing or patch testing, immunotherapy, biologic treatment. Even though there's a little risk of anaphylaxis with the immunotherapy and biologic treatments, it's rare to have severe anaphylaxis with those to, to the point that people are coughing and wheezing. And then perhaps food or drug challenges may be considered low where the risk of reaction is very low. For example, amoxicillin oral challenges after negative skin tests or food challenges in patients with a very low likelihood of systemic reactions. So these are patients who you really don't think are truly allergic, but you want to rule it out because they've got borderline skin tests or borderline in vitro tests to do a food challenge, those patients rarely have any reactions in the office. So I think that those are pretty low-risk kinds of procedures. But on the other hand, skin testing in young children could be a potentially more risky because if you've got a crying, struggling child who's unable to wear a mask, then that could put the staff at risk. Some food or drug challenges with an increased risk of anaphylactic reactions would be considered a medium risk. And then there are several procedures that we routinely perform in our office in the past that are considered aerosol generating procedures. And that includes things like spirometry, peak flow measurements, use of a nebulizer, instructing patients on MDI use, exhaled, um, exhaled nitric oxide measurements, all of those could be considered high risk. What we thought about is, and there's probably going to be some controversy about the spirometry issue. Um, there are some spirometers that have filters that, that state that those filters will capture uh, SARS-CoV-2. But as we all know, if you've got a, a brittle asthmatic, they're all coughing and wheezing after they do the spirometry. So the risk is there, even though the, the air that goes through the pneumotachograph is, uh, is filtered, uh, all the air around them is not. And so there are perhaps uh, something that be, may become more practical is the home FEV1 monitoring. There are a few devices out there that are available, some of which can uh, attach to your iPhone and, and directly transmit information to an electronic health record. And that would allow even, even better management, perhaps, of our asthma patients. And we can use telehealth for patient education, like instructing people on MDI technique. So there are other options that, just like telemedicine, they change the way we practice allergy because of these safety issues. Mm. Yeah, and in some ways, I think it'll change for the better. We may never go back on some of these things. Uh, you know, time will tell on that, of course. But um, I appreciate you 
highlighting that. And I think it's really important for listeners to understand not only as they read through the, the suggestions, but to hear the explanation that really we're trying to reduce the risk of aerosol generating, you know, respiratory droplets and things like that, where we can you know, transmit that from asymptomatic folks. So I appreciate you highlighting that. Now, um, I guess the other aspect of this too is, you know, as we start to resume some semblance of prior activities, both in general and in, in our practices, what advice do you have for these practices as they resume um, operations regarding the need to continually evaluate their processes and protocols? Is it, you know, set it and forget it? Or uh, do you have any thoughts on how often maybe they should reevaluate things and, and how they should do, this, do so? Well, they definitely have to reevaluate. Um, you know, to begin with, I'm sure things are going to be buggy and not work well. Um, and so they need to sort of uh, practice, do, study, act sort of things, plan, do, study, act, where they plan a procedure, do it, study the results, make changes. Um, probably on a weekly basis, they need to decide if the systems they've set up are working well. And if not, how can they change them? If they are working well, can they up the number of patients seen? Um, you know, those are all things that they need to consider. Um, the unfortunately bad results of, of not doing it right don't turn up for at least a couple of weeks because somebody who's infected in the office may not develop symptoms until later and they may be exposed in a number of other areas. So. It's, it's really difficult to say, okay, what I'm doing in the office resulted in that person getting infected. We just don't know that um, because everything else is going to be reopening at the same time or resuming business at the same time. So for that reason, they really have to monitor the community and what's going on in the community. And they have to be really careful about uh, increasing office visits and things like that when they're seeing an increase or a new spike in, in disease in their community. Oh, well, excellent, excellent uh, thoughts and recommendations for everybody to consider as we, you know, hopefully resume some semblance of what we once had just a few months ago. And Dr. Williams, with that, you know, I can't thank you enough for taking time on your busy schedule to be with us today. I think this is an extremely helpful conversation. Uh, before we depart, is there anything else that you'd like to add? One more thing I'd like to add, and that is that the task force wants to hear from the practicing and, and academic allergists. We want to know what their concerns are, what their burdens are, maybe how they've solved some of the problems, and particularly as things resume and people run into issues that maybe we didn't think about, that we can all uh, put our heads together and, and try and come up with solutions. Excellent. Thank you again. Thank you for having me. We hope today's episode was helpful. Please visit www.aaaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.